Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Jim Davies' website, jimdavies.org, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. One of his other previous books called Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh. That's interesting, too. If we have some time, Jim, I want to ask you a little bit about laughter and why the human body does that. But how do you measure imagination with science? You can measure imagination a couple of ways. Um, it's hard, though, because it's a very... Uh, internal kind of thing. It's um, we have to get uh, secondary measures and sort of triangulate like we do in many other kinds of sciences. So the simplest thing to do is to ask someone what they imagine, and this is um, useful for dream imagery. For example, we ask people what they dreamed about, and we can find patterns in their reports. Uh, we can ask people the nature of their imagination. We can do an exercise right now with your with your listeners. We can say, everybody, imagine a triangle as vividly as you can, and what color is that triangle? People picture the triangle. And then we can ask them what color it was. But um, also what's interesting is that we can say, all right, well, that triangle that you imagine now that you've got it, is there a flat side down or a pointed side down? And the vast majority of people will say, oh, hmm, yeah, I was thinking about the color, but yes, it does have a flat side down. And, you know, we can, we can look at that and say, look, that, you know, it represents a stable object in the world because objects are more stable when, uh, when they're not on a, you know, floating on a point. <laughs> they're, um, a right. real triangle in the real world would be flat side down. So that's one way we could do it. Um, there are also ways uh, emerging now to use brain scans to try to uh, guess which of several pictures someone is imagining. That's pretty it's still fairly primitive, um, but as we get better and better brain scans, we might be able to have more objective measures, uh, less subject to interpretation and memory and all that kind of thing. Can you teach someone to be imaginative? Oh, boy, I really wish I had better news. So you can teach someone to be more creative, for sure, and there are lots of books out there on creativity that you know give you tools for that kind of thing. But as far as imagery goes, your vividness of your imagery appears to be something that you cannot make better. Uh, and now this, I've, I've read everything there is on this in the last couple of years, and there is a lot of advice, but when it comes to scientific evidence, uh, it doesn't hold up very well. So there are exercises out there you can do, but they don't, um, I, I haven't found evidence that they appear to do much good. Uh, so in terms of vividness, right? So when, you, when people uh, imagine something like a beach scene or something like that, there's a lot of differences in how vivid that imagery is. Some people, it's, it's almost like they're right there, and for some people it's very dim. And from some people who are called aphantasic, they have no experience at all. They don't even know what it means to try to bring a picture to mind. Uh, and it doesn't appear that there's anything you can do to change it. Getting older makes it get worse, <laughs> so... People's imagery <clears throat> is stronger in their early 20s, and it seems to slowly decline over, over uh, the lifespan. Uh, but, yeah, it doesn't seem to be able to be something we can make more vivid, unfortunately. As you test people for imagination, what's the method that you use? Um, so in my laboratory, it's mostly uh, a report. So people will uh, talk about what they're looking at. Um, so we'll we'll give them a situation. We might say, um, you know, imagine a cat, a scene with a cat in it, and tell us what else is in the scene. Uh, and then we can note where those objects are and what they are and that kind of thing. How long have you been doing this now, Jim? 
Um, I've been uh, working here for about 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. What got you interested in this? Uh, well, when I was in graduate school um, doing my dissertation, uh, my advisor at Georgia Tech, Ashok Goyle, recommended, uh, and also Nancy Nersessian, both cognitive scientists, recommended that I study um, visual problem solving. How do people picture things in their heads to try to solve problems? And when I would talk to people about this, they would say, where do these pictures come from? And I'd say, nobody knows. So when I became a professor, I thought, that's what I'm going to tackle. I'm going to try to figure out when people imagine a scene in their head, how do they pick those objects? Where do they go? Uh, what's the orientation? What's the point of view? Those, these are the mysteries that um, my lab is trying to tackle. Is a dream somewhat imaginative? Yes, dreams. Uh, they're not usually not usually talked about, but in my book I have a whole chapter on dreaming uh, because it is generating things in your head. Usually it's the most vivid way to generate anything in your head that people ever experience. And even many people who cannot have any mental imagery that's deliberate when they're awake, they can't bring pictures to their head or they can't hear, they can't generate like a song in their head. Even many of those people have dream imagery, right? So it appears that it uses some but not all of the same mental tools as uh, daydreaming and, and other kinds of imagination. But it's certainly, by a definitional criteria, it's definitely imagination, as, as would be hallucinations and other things like that. Because you're creating something sensory-like, uh, but it's from your memories and your mind rather than from the outside world. And what is a hallucination? How would you coin it? <clears throat> hallucination is uh, not super clearly defined, it, uh, but I'll give you a, a basic definition, and that is that it is the um, perception of the existence of something without an appropriate perceptual input. So if you see a book or you see a jar of peanut butter, but there is no jar of peanut butter in front of you, in front of you then we would consider that a hallucination. Now, if it's in a dream, then you know we don't call it a hallucination, we, don't call we call it, it a dream, but right. you know, <laughs> there's still... You know, the things you see in your dream aren't things that are right in front of you either. But that's how we define hallucinations. Does a, hallucina a hallucination say that there's something wrong with the brain, something physical? Uh, not necessarily, no. Um, I, a lot of people have hallucinations for a lot of reasons, and it's often not any need for concern. Uh, the, the most famous symptom... Um, is uh, like voices in the head, and th that can be a symptom of uh, schizophrenia, but um, many, many people in their lives will hear voices or see things out of the corner of their eye, and uh, it's just a glitch in the system, but it's very temporary and is not a sign of anything wrong. This is particularly true in states of uh, uh, semi-wakefulness, so when you're falling asleep or when you're just waking up, frequently I, I will maybe not frequently, but many times in my life I've been uh, trying to fall asleep and I thought I heard someone say my name or I thought I hear the door knocking. And that's a particular kind of hallucination called dream intrusion, where you're uh, half awake and half asleep and you mistake something in a dreamlike state for something in the real world. I will sometimes wake up to a doorbell ringing and yep. there's nobody there. Well, you're probably, your mind is probably fine. <laughs> And and it's, and it's noteworthy that you're you know uh, waking up to it, which suggests that you are near sleep, mm -hmm. right? So you're probably you're it's probably a, uh, dr that's probably a dream intrusion hallucination.
Interesting take. I mean, it's really yeah. it, it's bizarre because you you know you would bet money that you heard a doorbell ring, and you know yeah. you, you wake up, you go down there, there's nobody there. And you know what's funny? Like there are experiments where they have people vividly imagine something, and sometimes they end up thinking that it's really there. So there was an experiment where they had people imagine us um, that White Christmas was playing in the next room. Yeah, and they asked them to vividly imagine the song, and a, a sizable percentage of those people actually thought that it was playing in the other room. So, it, you know, there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that when your imagination can get strong enough, sometimes it can trigger the same aspects of your mind that perception does, and then you can interpret it as something real, and you might, you might consider that a hallucination. How imaginative are children? So children, uh, I want to get something out of the way. that <laughs> Children, in the, in the creativity sense, Children are not as creative as everyone seems to think. And, and not. I think that okay. we all kind of know this because, you know, when was the last, like, blockbuster movie franchise that was completely based on a kid's idea right? <laughs> or something like right. that? Or an amazing invention that was invented by a four-year-old. So what kids are, they are uninhibited, right? Particularly children that are younger than five are very uninhibited, so they come up with things that are, really quirky and interesting, and we say, oh my goodness, that's really creative. But the most creative things in this world, when we talk about like the most creative inventions or the most creative ideas, they're usually made by adults. Uh, and um, so kids aren't super creative in that way. Now, in terms of imagination, they engage in it a lot, particularly before the age of five in what we would call pretend play. And this is something we all know. Children playing games that don't really have rules. They're just sort of like simulating real life or a fantasy situation. They're sort of living it out, right? And this involves um, taking objects from the real world and imagining them as different things. So this is an interesting use of imagination. We, I often think about imagination like you're just lying there thinking about a beach or something. But a lot of the times we can imagine something as someone else, like a banana as a phone. And the child knows that the banana is not a phone, but they are pretending that it's a mm -hmm. phone. Uh, or, you know, they make a fort out of the cushions of the couch or something like that. And that they're engaging in imagery and imagination, and they're probably rehearsing how to behave in social situations and how to escape danger and all the other reasons that we play. Um, and that we, we find that very charming. And the reason we associate imagination with children so much is because we grow out of that stage. By the time we get to ages 5 to 10, we're children sort of naturally become much more interested in games with rules and uh, trying to negotiate the social world in terms of rules, right? So you'll often find, you know, eight-year-olds, but four-year-olds will just, like, just play and have no rules or whatever, and then eight-year-olds spend half the time arguing about what the rules of the game are. <laughs> what if the kids have imaginary friends? Uh, maybe it's possible there's really a ghost in the house. Well, um, so uh, the evidence that ghosts are real, I find very unconvincing. So, as a scientist, I don't, I don't believe in ghosts. Uh, but there, um, I can see why some people will interpret it that way. Sure. Uh, and there are many cultures that believe that uh, imaginary friends are maybe not ghosts, but they might be spirits of ancestors or um, demonic things or something like that. So, there's a lot of variance in the culture in how accepting they are of imaginary companions, imaginary friends. Um, but uh, in our culture, people, parents tend to think it's a little strange to have an imaginary friend. They, they try to shut the kid down, don't they? Well, early on, 
often it's acceptable, but by the time they're eight years old or ten years old, they start to think it's a little abnormal, and children sense this, and they start, and you know what happens? They go dark. <laughs> so they, many children still have their imaginary friends when they're uh, eight, maybe even into their teens, but they will just not tell their parents about it because they sense that they weird, it gets weird, it weirds them out. But it's not, it's not a hallucination, actually. Um, imaginary friends are, the kids know that they're imaginary. Um, they do not um, have any trouble distinguishing fantasy from reality. And this is something that parents worry about. But there are a couple things really interesting about this. One is that parents also, to the, to the same extent, have trouble distinguishing fantasy from reality. And you can see this whenever they watch a horror movie and they get terrified. You could legitimately ask them, why are you scared of a movie? Do you have trouble distinguishing fantasy from reality? Um, of course, the movie, and this is what I wrote about in my first book, Riveted, you know, movies can uh, affect your emotional state and it bypasses your rational thinking, right? So even though you know that it's a, just a movie, you're still frightened by the imagery. And to the same extent, children know that their imaginary companions are not real. In fact, when researchers talk to them, they'll ask all these questions, and sometimes the kids will say, you know it's not real, right? Because they've never <laughs> been asked by an adult so many questions about the imaginary companion. Um, but yes, they can get uh, emotionally involved with their imaginary companions. They can have them as friends. They can be disappointed when the imaginary companion can't go with them to the park or something like that, which makes parents sometimes think they can't distinguish fantasy from reality. But they're just emotionally involved. Well, believe this or not, but I got a call years ago uh, on Open Lines where a little girl had an imaginary friend in the house, and she kept talking to her parents about it. And finally she said, uh, uh, you know, Betty's not going to be able to come, come, come anymore. And they said, why? And they said, well, she's, she died. And they said, what do you mean she died? And they found it to be kind of frightening, right? Your little kid's talking about that. And uh, she said, well, Betty said that she she was killed in the house here, and they put her, they buried her here. And she kind of, like, pointed to some boards, and the parents really freaked out, Jim. So apparently they called the cops, and they came and pulled up the boards and found the bones of a little girl. Yeah. Now that's weird. Yeah, that's a weird, it's a weird story. You know, uh, it's hard to point to uh, independent or. Uh, independent events and know what happened there. I can say that imaginary companions, when children do um, abandon them, and they eventually do, they do without any fanfare, or they will often say that the per- that they just died. They're so gone, as, right. As attached they, as they get to them, they often do not uh, mourn their passing or anything like that. They move on to new imaginary friends or none at all. Or but you don't always find bones in the house, that's for sure. No, <laughs> yes, thank goodness. <laughs> If if you could do anything with imagination, what would you do? And and where I'm headed at with is, can imagination change the direction of the planet? Um, you know, can it can it change the mindset of people? What can it do? Yeah, imagination. Um, I I I think that people can be really limited by their imagination. Of course, it's the key to a lot of invention and creativity, as we talked about. Um, but also the people's, um, they're restricted by their imaginations. You know, if you look at the history of inventions, it's really interesting. When the first cars were created, remember what came before cars? They were carriages pulled by carriages, horses. Carriages, right? horses, that's right. And the first cars and the first trains looked a lot more like horse-drawn carriages. And that's because people 
one, I had a hard time imagining what they maybe should look like or could look like, but also people are kind of not accepting of things that don't look like how they expect them to be. They will reject something that looks too weird or too different. So there needs, often needs to be a gradual change. You know, I see this with, I see this now with how people imagine uh, automated vehicles. When they think about self-driving cars, they basically picture, you know, like a Honda Civic or whatever that drives itself instead of a moving office or a hotel room on wheels or a single passenger, very sleek, um, you know, that can just bring you, like, zip through the traffic in between cars because it's so tiny it only needs to bring you to work and doesn't need a trunk, doesn't need this and that. And it could be that we're going to have a huge variety of automated vehicles that are rented as needed rather than, you know, you just having a, you know, a Honda Civic, right? So, th- so people's ideas about what the future is going to be like can be limited because imagination, George, basically imagination is, is only from your memories, and you can only recombine things from your memories to create imagination. And as such, experience fuels your imagination, but also can restrain it because you can only imagine what you know. Will computers ever imagine? Oh, they're already doing it. Really? Oh, yeah. Like so, people? Uh, anybody who's played Diablo, for example, a video game from Blizzard that was popular, has got I, two I versions not. out, um, uses something called uh, procedurally generated maps. So the computer, the software, when you start the program, makes up a dungeon for you to go through. And that was never made by any person. Uh, the uh, programmers made up rules and, and that kind of thing. But it's a completely new, completely imagined dungeon. And lots of video games do that. Fascinating. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern. And go to coasttocoastam.com for more.